Talk Live. This is Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thanks for being interested in the principles of individual liberty. You can listen to Liberty Conspiracy Live every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Streaming on my Twitter slash X feed, that being at Gard Goldsmith, G-A-R-D-G-O-L-D-S-M-I-T-H. Or you can get involved with the chat at Rumble or Rockfin. You can also find my substack, that's the Gardner Goldsmith substack, and Gardner is spelled G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Every Sunday, we have the Sunday News Assembly with at least 20 stories pertaining to your individual liberty, plus contextual information to help carry away long-standing lessons about freedom. Let's get right to the information from Liberty Conspiracy. First off tonight, it's The Flash, and this Flash is the Bee Gees Blitz edition of The Flash. Yeah, we're going to go very quickly through the narratives of a couple stories, and then we're going to get into the nonsense narrative collapse. Item number one, and it's coming in two parts, A and B. One A is J6, if that's not enough numbers and letters for you, about the nonsense narratives collapsing. And then item 1B is the Israeli claims regarding October 7th deaths. And the hospital hideout. Then we're going to discuss item number two. Second big chunk is the Biden administration. Biden is invoking what's called the Defense Production Act, a Cold War era statute, as we often heard over the weekend, if you were clued in on that particular story, among the many that you probably covered. And that is something where he's invoking it to push pork spending on heat pumps for all of us trapped in his collectivist corral. Yeah, and those of you who live in the north of this collectivist corral know that heat pumps are not replacements for furnaces. And yet they're depicting them that way. And that's just part of what they're depicting as A-OK. <laughs> no Illuminati symbolism there. Uh, and no, it's not the whatever's the white symbol stuff or whatever. Our third item is going to be GOPers pushing something else themselves. And I know, shocker, a bunch of GOPers are acting like they're Democrats. I know it's weird. Yeah, they're pushing a carbon tax slash tariff. We'll give you the information on that one. And I want to say hi to everybody inside Rockfin chat and inside Rumble chat. Thank you for the heads up, everybody. Super awesome of you to be so cool. Carlos, nice to have you there. And I really appreciate you. Good to hear me. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you so much, Nancy, for being there. Little John as well. We we don't have a lot of time, so let's fly through this. And I want to thank everybody also at Hal 9000 and Risha M and Birdhouse Blues over at Rumble. Please hit the thumbs up and spread the word on the show, even with that blank period of vocals. Yeah. I know it's it's it is frustrating, but what can you do? And it's one of those deals where you come back from the weekend and like, oh, no, shouldn't have to do it. But you got to do it. You got to do it. So let's see what we can see tonight on the program as we run through. You know it. You got to love it. It's time for us to get funky and go to another planet real quick with some breaking news stories. Yes? Oh, hello. Uh, hello. We're Mary's pal. 
Spanish. Yeah, everybody, and it's time for us to go to Massachusetts. I'm going back to Massachusetts. Oh, the Bee Gees. I love these guys. Something's telling me I must go home. Oh, man. I was saying, if you listen to this tune real close. I left standing on the road. The Bee Gees have been quoted and through the, throughout their illustrious career, of course, Robin, Maurice, and Barry, the brothers give, and their younger brother, of course, doing amazingly well on his own in a solo career. Uh, but the Bee Gees right there, uh, Robin Maurice and Barry Gibb, uh, just amazing talents, deserving of every moment uh, in the spotlight and all the great success they had. They mentioned that one of their great inspirations was Roy Orbison. They loved his vocals, and you can tell by listening to this song, you can actually tell they actually get some of their structure from uh, classic Roy Orbison uh, pattern. I want to That could be Roy. Awesome, awesome stuff. I never got to see the Bee Gees, but my sister got to see them, and I got the tour T-shirt. <laughs> so I could fake it, but I wouldn't do that. It's the Spirits Having Flown tour that they did uh, many, many, a uh, couple decades ago, many, many years ago. I wish I could have seen them. That would have been great. But that takes us to a quick story about the writing of that song, Massachusetts. Uh, this was done on a bet. Robin Gibb and uh, the brothers Gibb were on a, a boat somewhere. I think they might have been like New York or something like that, going down the Hudson River. I don't even remember. And uh, the, someone was saying, hey, uh, can uh, let's let's see if you can write songs about the states. It was like a bet. Who can write a song about the states? And so Robin, even though he had never been to Massachusetts, he just made it up. He made up a song about Massachusetts without ever having been to Massachusetts and it became a big hit and everybody loves it in Massachusetts. They, you know, it evokes thoughts of, of Boston and the Freedom Trail and Western Massachusetts and the Mohawk Trail and all the great Indian settlements around there and so on. But he'd never been there. It's amazing. It's almost one of the anthems for Massachusetts. And the guy who wrote it had not even been to Massachusetts up to that point. So let's now find out what's going on in Massachusetts as we head over to this website, the Swellsley Report. And you can see the S added to Wellesley, Massachusetts. And the reason they did that was because Wellesley is called Swellsley by people who aren't big fans of the high kind of highbrow elitist people who tend to live around Wellesley. And Wellesley is well known as having a lot of very wealthy leftists living there. And this story seems to evoke many thoughts about those wealthy leftists 
It has to do with Wellesley High School. Now, just to let you know, when I got up this morning, I turned on WRKO out of Boston, and this story was on fire around Boston. So I'd like to hear from you and find out whether or not you've heard about this, too, because the radio host... And yes, I was on the the WRKO today. I wasn't invited on. I just called. I just called in because I thought something was missing from a lot of the calls. And they were getting tons of calls. People were very upset about this story from Wellesley High School. It has to do with patriotism and homecoming and traditions. And a lot of people evoking, it evoked memories of their own childhood and what they think is patriotic, and what they think is being lost. And over and over again, on the radio, on Jeff Cooner's show on WRKO out of Boston today, caller after caller after caller just repeated their absolute disgust with the way the public school systems were working, the the cultural Marxism. Oh, rainbow flag would definitely go up. You know, they would have no problem with that if they wanted to have Tommy has two fathers in the library or something like that. They would have no problem with that. But Traditional Americana? Well, let's dig into this story and find out what the details are. America Day fails to make Wellesley High's Spirit Week cut. So we're only going to talk about this briefly in the newsflash and then dig into those bigger stories. But I wanted to give you this sort of lighter story, but it does have a lesson, especially coming from Massachusetts and the history of Massachusetts. Spirit Week is a long-standing tradition at Wellesley High School leading up to the annual pep rally and big Thanksgiving Day football matchup versus Needham. And I've mentioned Needham before because that's where Channel 5 WCBB is located. That's where Matt Taibbi's father, Mike Taibbi, worked. It's right on Route 128, which is sort of a circumferential beltway, circumferential beltway around Massachusetts. And uh, that's where a lot of the tech companies and biotech companies are located on Route 128. So they have their their yearly football for Thanksgiving, football matchup. Every year, the halls vibrate with excitement. Do they really? As students psych themselves up by theme dressing to express their Raiders pride. And as I mentioned, when you couldn't hear me, um, the Massachusetts folks probably have a bit of an affinity for the Oakland Raiders after um, um, the uh, former uh, former uh, Patriots quarterback Plunkett was traded to Oakland. And that winter was a star, absolutely stellar for the Oakland Raiders. And uh, Jim Plunkett, I think his name was, uh, he scored like twice in one game just shortly after the trade from the New England Patriots to the Raiders, twice within like 40 seconds. The guy was amazing. It was it was, and and he seems like a pretty cool guy. He always reminded me of that actor A Martinez who was on um was it uh, LA Law or something like that. But anyway, uh this year's Spirit Days have included Mismatch Monday, Pajama Day, and Tropical Tuesday. Now I know they don't have Taxation Thursday, but that's sort of part of this. But they don't have America Day which was proposed by some students, but rejected by the Wellesley High School administration. And that's what got everybody calling. And the host was just like, wow. He says, this is blowing up. And he was saying that the story was going national. So I'd love to hear from you if you're you know, out there beyond Massachusetts, beyond New England. If you did hear about this story, amongst all the stories that you were covering and looking at, let me know. 
I'm curious to see if this thing did get national from Wellesley, Massachusetts. In a letter to the school community, Principal Jamie Chisholm explained the decision not to go forward with what with that spirit theme because it felt really different than the other themes kids came up with for the week. We felt that the topic has been politicized beyond our school, and we wanted to avoid politics. This coming from a political employee. This coming from an employee of the polis. We don't want things to be political. We don't want politics to enter this, even though this is the polis. And so everything we do here is, by definition, political. <laughs> kind of missing missing a big, big train coming down on you there, buddy. You're kind of missing the reality of this. Everything you do is political. Even the temperature at which you set the classrooms is a political hot button. Jeez. Spirit Week is intended to be light and and a fun way for our students to get excited about our pep rally and Thanksgiving Day football game. Well, that's awesome. As you get geared up for Thanksgiving, think about this one. So I was hearing all these people calling into the show and Jeff Cooner and so on, and everybody was, you know, almost to a person. They were just going absolutely bonkers. Like, this wouldn't have happened when I was a kid. This is crazy. Don't these people understand? This is America. What happened to tradition? This is Thanksgiving coming up, for goodness sake. And they can't even acknowledge America. They're in America. And I, so I called up and I was like, well, actually, if and they said, what happened to their patriotism? What happened to that? Don't they love American tradition? And I was like, well, if you actually go back in American history, A a real patriotic person would acknowledge that government isn't supposed to be involved with schools. In fact, this very debate is a manifestation of the problem, the practical problem of funding education through the polis. It's like not only is it immoral to tell your neighbor that he's got to shell out money for a school system he might not like. But in addition to that, you aren't going to please everybody. And this is a perfect example of it. We've got the principal, Jamie Chisholm, doing one thing, and everybody's all set on fire like fireworks. It's crazy. But, of course, it's not fireworks. It's not Spirit Week. It's not patriotic. But that was what everybody was looking at. They were assuming that this town-run, government-run education system was somehow part of Americana, that it was somehow part of America to have a government-run school system recognize America as good. I mean, if that isn't convoluted logic, I don't know what is. So what we want to do is we want to promote the ideas of patriotism and American freedom through a collectivist decision-making process. It's like, no, no. So I called the show and it was really hard to get through. It was like over and over and over again, trying to get through, trying to get through. I got through and Jeff Cooner was very, very kind. And we've disagreed on some things, but he was real nice. And and so he said, uh, I said, look, you know, one of the things that's almost ironic about this is people are talking about American patriotism and tradition and so on. It's not American tradition to have tax-funded schools. I was like, and in fact, 
Massachusetts is probably one of the best places to bring this up because in the early 1800s, the architect Charles Bullfinch, who's famous for Boston's Bullfinch Place, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, like the host is like, oh, I know Bullfinch Place. I'm like, yeah, he designed Bullfinch Place and a number of churches and buildings around the area. He wanted government-run schools in the early 1800s. They kept trying over and over again with different people from Harvard, originally Calvinist people, and then Harvard got taken over by Unitarian Universalists, and they kept trying to push first to get the Catholics away from their church-run schools and because they wanted it to be Protestant, so they wanted them to be good citizens, and they just couldn't convince people to get away from their church-run schools and private schools. So Bullfinch, who wanted government-run schools, he actually paid for, he funded a study called the Bullfinch Study, and you can see it in the work of Sam Blumenfeld. I think John Taylor Gatto might have brought it up, and uh, and um, Charlotte Iserby, who sort of got her start from talking to people like Sam and doing local stuff and seeing how bad things were. Uh, Sam actually got a copy of the Bullfinch Study. Bullfinch had a, a study done, and it showed that like 90-something percent of the kids in the Massachusetts area were educated privately through at least sixth grade. And the literacy level was very, very high, as you know, at that time. So it wasn't necessary on a practical level. And of course, it's immoral. So I called up, I was like, yeah, it's ahistorical. It's actually not patriotic to try to get people to recognize American patriotism within government-run schools. What you'd want to do is get people to recognize that the government-run school system where all these people are arguing with each other is ahistorical and was shown to be that in Massachusetts itself by Charles Bullfinch. So he's like, oh, thank you so much. He's got this funny thing that, that he says to the callers. He's like, he, he goes, he goes, Gardner, he says, I love you in a non-sexual way. And I was like, oh, well, okay, thanks. That's nice of you to say. <laughs> so there you go. That is one of the big things I wanted to start with on our news flash. And there's one very small one that I want to add to that. And it comes with a very fine old TV theme. the news for the courts, you might ask. Well, in the news for the courts, one and all, is the big Twitter slash X news. And in fact, you might have heard that Elon Musk is bringing a big, big suit against Media Matters because it is trying to portray X slash Elon Musk as being somehow anti-Semitic and so on. And Michael Schellenberger says the media say X is placing Apple, IBM, and other ads near pro-Nazi content, but it is not. We tried various ways to replicate Media Matters' research and could not. The real goal of Media Matters isn't to fight anti-Semitism. It's to destroy X as a free speech platform. And as you know, 
Democrats need to censor and spread disinformation behind media war on Elon Musk's X. So a number of advertisers are pulling their advertising from X. So there is not some reflection of anti-Semitism. And in fact, these accusations have gotten Elon Musk to act in a de- act in a defensive way where certain materials that I wish were being shown on Twitter slash X, Elon Musk is getting some of those removed. If you watch the um, if you watch the gray zone today, there's footage from the Middle East, from the Gaza Hamas Israel battle that uh, Musk actually said, OK, you, you know, it was up, but we're going to take it down. Uh, these sorts of pressures stifling free speech this is definitely not what we want and sure those people who are advertising they're free to not advertise but to see media matters which is very heavily connected to people like john podesta and other left-wing political forces try to depict x as being pro-nazi is just absurd i mean talk about using Nazi tactics and lies to try to silence free speech. That's what they're engaging in. So check it out if you get the opportunity. Michael Schellenberger's uh, recent one, it's called Public. That's his Substack. It's called Public. Uh, they've got a very good overview on that. It's Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction, and its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible, and its network is protected from 51% of attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete. So it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol. And it's available in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by that treasury. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. We continue on Liberty Conspiracy live on Free Talk Live. 
to head on into the courts, one and all. Glorious. Now it's time for us to go to our first much, much heavier story. It's a major story. It has to do with a lot of people's livelihoods. And Jason Barker, my hat is off to you. My proverbial hat is off to you for holding tough and helping so many people out there. I, and I just wish I could give you a high five, dude. Just great, great stuff. And folks, if you're, if you're new to the show and you don't know what Jason Barker did to try to help people, along with David Knight promoting it, uh, he really helped out a lot of folks in composing uh, writing that would allow for people to get exemptions if they were in the military to not get this DNA damaging, mRNA, clot producing, heart damaging, life shortening jab that was untested, that uh, was surrounded by lies, and of course fed through government coercion. Now we're seeing the results a couple years later at Thanksgiving time. Here we go. Former troops punished over Biden's vaccine mandate sue for billions in lost wages. But if only they had listened to the government of New York, then they wouldn't. Oh, that's right. They would have gotten the jabs because the government of New York was engaging in this and disinformation. Don't forget, that's Kathy Hochul, now the governor of New York and the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, was caught trying to eliminate text messages and emails and trying to convince people to not tell people the truth about what he was doing, sending older people, sick people into elderly, uh, elderly homes that were being run by the state of New York. And they had one of the worst worldwide levels of elderly people dying. That's elderly abuse. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But and of course, that's just the outcome of it. The taking of the money to fund those elderly homes and the government control is the immoral imposition. Here's the story from Christina Wong. Former troops are suing the U.S. government. And we've got a lot of court stories. They're suing for lost pay and benefits due to the Biden administration's military so-called vaccine mandate. One of the lawyers who successfully brought down the anthrax vaccine told Breitbart News. Attorney Dale Sarin, not like Sarin Gas, a retired Marine and fellow attorneys Andy Meyer and Brandon Johnson are representing the former troops in three separate lawsuits they plan to turn into a class action lawsuit. And by the way, I didn't get to mention, you know, people like Jay Bhattacharya and the folks uh, from the uh, Great Barrington Declaration now involved with the Missouri v. Biden suit, which is... Uh, I'm sure the uh, the Supreme Court, based on this composition, is going to find in favor of them that their um, their professions were hurt by gov- government engaging in censorship and Facebook welcoming that censorship and other platforms being manipulated by the government, both during the Trump administration and during the Biden administration, as many of the Twitter Twitter files revealed and as discovery will probably even reveal even further. So remember the Missouri v. Biden case that also has combined the uh, second group of plaintiffs, uh, JFK's Children's Health Defense, because they too are claiming damage from government uh, censorship about the correct protocol for any type of a pandemic, which is the natural protocol, not the artificial one that gives people a false sense of security through so-called jabs. So this is a class action suit 
on behalf of all service members who were either kicked out or illegally ordered to stop drilling, resulting in loss of pay or benefits. Saren said the amount is in the billions. So that, of course, then brings us to the question that we brought up earlier when we looked at the Osama bin Laden letter as to who is actually responsible. This is where we're all going to end up paying these billions. In fact, we're not, we're, the U.S. government is $33 trillion in debt. Just the interest on the debt is greater than a trillion dollars a year now. So we're running into a real problem where multiple generations, not just the next generation, but multiple generations are being born into debt slavery on the federal government side. We're not even looking at the state governments, which often are in debt. And then they try to balance their books by getting Medicare and Medicaid money or school money from the feds. They're all attached. They're all desperate. That's this federalist form of fascism, which isn't really federalist in any way whatsoever because they're attached. They're not a true confederation of mostly independent nation states, which is what the founders had hoped to have under the Articles of Confederation and got completely wiped away when the usurpers like Alexander Hamilton came in, said they wanted to amend the Articles of Confederation, and then just completely replaced it without the 100% vote of the original states as the Articles of Convention actually stipulated. So the whole thing is a massive sham going back to those types of Machiavellian miscreants like Alexander Hamilton and others like Robert Morris and their banking friends at the time. So now we're all attached. That, as we mentioned, leads us to the thoughts about the bin Laden letter, whether it was artificially pushed forward or not. We know, as you know, as I know, most of the people who have been caught as authentic terrorists, not the FBI trumped up plots that we mentioned last night in the piece that I read to you from that journal article that was 70 pages long. And no, I didn't read all 70 pages if you missed the show last night. But the ones who actually have appeared in court, like the Times Square bomber, they have said they pled guilty. He's pled guilty. And he said, I will plead guilty a 100 times more because of what the United States government is doing in the Middle East. You look at the Pulse nightclub attacker. It wasn't that he didn't like gay people. It was that he went there, and as he told the police, he was doing it to protest U.S. policy in the Middle East, the Islamic nations, the U.S. backing of the Zionist state of Israel, the U.S. slaughtering hundreds of thousands of innocent women and children in Iraq with the embargo, an act of war. All of these types of things that they have done, supporting tyrants, overthrowing governments like the government of Iran in 1953, all these things, they're all tied up. They, you know, Their friends, their relatives are being wiped out. And we've got news coming up uh, from anti-war about even more happening in Iraq. And as I mentioned, it looked like Iraq was starting to turn away from the United States. Well, lo and behold, remember we talked about that the other day, right? Lo and behold, what's going on? United States attacking sites in Iraq, where they already have massive bases in Iraq and a giant embassy there. So let's get back to this military one, however. We're going to end up paying, right? So just like, just like they tell us, the people in Washington, that the government is us, even though I have no choice, if I don't pay, I'm going to go to prison. So actually, I do have a choice. I could not pay and go to prison, or I could pay and not go to prison, right? Or I could not pay. They could threaten to take me to prison. And then I could resist at my home with firearms, as I have a right to do. 
and then they could attack me and claim that I was the bad guy, that I was engaging in the aggressive violence when they're the ones who engage in the aggressive violence at every step. And I'm just saying, please leave me alone. Right. So now we're all going to have to pay if this goes in their favor. And I actually I hope it does go in their favor. But some anarchists might say, hey, man, they willingly sign on. They willingly sign on for the military and it's up to them to take this choice or not take this choice. Well, I understand. I understand how that goes. Um, and I understand how some people could argue, look, this is a choice that they didn't know they were going to be presented with. They didn't know about this. This is a moral choice as well, because these jabs, both Moderna and Pfizer, were developed through the use of fetal stem cell lines. So if you believe in the right to life, then why in the world would you want to get injected with the byproduct of death, of murder of a child? So all these things are mixed in. The question is, again, what do soldiers agree to do? And is it even moral to agree to fight for a polis when you know that the only way that the polis can get its money is through aggressive violence against taxpayers? So how does that all work, right? To me, as a voluntarist, as an anarchist, as uh, some people in Argentina might be familiar, I say at every point, if there is force involved, it is immoral. If there is aggressive force involved, it is immoral. And you got to try to get away from it. And that goes all the way down to, does an anarchist use the roads? If the roads are put up around him, does he have a choice? What's, you know, does he just stay in a box? I think there comes a point when you re recognize that you have to try to engage in life against the things that have been imposed on you. And there's a difference between that and voluntarily taking on something that you don't have to take on. So I'll leave it at that. As far as this Breitbart story goes regarding this new lawsuit, it is going to be huge. It is just out. It's breaking information. Now, we've got more court information for you, everybody. This one, the Department of so-called justice. They want firearm bans for cannabis users. Now, we've spoken about this before. We talked to Toby Leary about this, about both the Heller standard and the Bruin standard. The Bruin standard piled on top of the Heller standard, which uh, came in 2008, just about this time. The Bruin standard just almost two years ago now. Uh, and the Bruin, well, a year and a half ago, the Bruin Standard coming from the New York Rifle and Pistol Association against both the city of New York and the state of New York. The state of New York allowed the city of New York to have more stringent so-called uh, concealed carry laws, basically making it impossible if somebody wanted to leave his residence in New York to go and actually even take um, uh, target practice uh, at, at a place outside the city. So this lawsuit was brought about by the defendants or by the, by the uh, plaintiffs in the New York uh, Rifle and Pistol Association. It was argued against Bruin, who was a member of the government at the time of, uh, of Andrew Cuomo's government. And uh, the Supreme Court found in favor of the plaintiffs. But they set up this standard. And this is sort of where it comes in. They set up this standard that actually puts into question a portion of the 1968 Gun Control Act. And all of it should be put into question because none of it is constitutional. None of it is moral. It is all based on aggression. But if you look at their rule book, the Second Amendment strictly forbids all, all of the provisions of the 1968 so-called Gun Control Act, okay, which banned certain types of guns and also prohibited people who were convicted felons or 
were suspected of using drugs, of being drug users, I should say, of being able to carry firearms. That's where the Hunter Biden stuff comes in, because he admitted that while he had a firearm, he was a cocaine addict. I think he probably still is. And it also indicates to us that the Bruin standard stepping in needs to be questioned a little bit. It might feel very comfortable for some people, but as Toby Leary and I discussed, it actually provides a false sense of security to many people who think that this new Bruin standard will actually defend their right to self-defense a little bit better. The Bruin standard stipulates that the first thing any judge has to do when looking at a statute that restricts the right to keep and bear arms against a certain person, like the 68 Gun Control Act, or like a so-called red flag law or anything like that, is whether or not the, the statute conforms to the wording of the Second Amendment. That should be it. Because the Second Amendment would then say all such statutes restricting anybody outside of a prison or a jail where they might be held, anybody who's out and not being affected by the courts being pulled in and jailed should should be able to exercise his or her right. Not, as I mentioned, the logical, practical thought that comes to mind, you know, sort of like a jagged thing poking out of somebody's head, maybe like a, a mold spur popping out is, wow, look at what just grew out of my mind, a thought. Hey, if somebody is not safe enough to allow outside of prison to hold a gun, then why are you allowing him outside of prison? Maybe there's a problem with your prison system, right? So if they're out, then they should be deemed safe enough to exercise their right to self-defense and to keep and bear a firearm. However, that's not what the 68 Gun Control Act did. Of course, Lyndon Johnson, what a classy dude setting that one up. So... This story that you see here from Benzinga actually ties into this and has to do with marijuana. And the curious thing is I saw this and I had to go through a bunch of steps and it was like all these different marijuana magazines that were reporting on it. They're like, do you want to receive this from marijuana news? And they're like, no, I don't. I get enough stuff from places. I don't need, I don't smoke pot. No, thank you. But anyway, the Department of So-Called Justice under the Biden administration, you know, Biden, whose son is a drug addict, uh, wants to make sure that that people who use marijuana can't have firearms. Now, there's a bunch of stories here that they go through, Maine, medical marijuana, and stuff like that. So I need to scroll down because every time I go to this tab, it resets the tab. So let me go back here and just find this one here. Here it is. DOJ fights for firearms ban for marijuana users. Wouldn't it be nice if DOJ fought for firearms? For people, but no, no, it's not going to happen. So what they're doing is, and this is where we brought up the Bruin standard, they're trying to claim, and this is the problem that I saw with Bruin, this, they're trying to claim that the second part of Bruin, remember the first part is the text of the Second Amendment, they're claiming that the second part, which we get to now, is pertinent here. The second part said, if you have a statute that is going to so-called limit the right, limit the right. I don't know how you get those two. If it's a right, it's unlimited by the state. That's why it's called a right. That's the definition of a right. It's unattenuable by the state. However, they say, if you've got a rights limiting, gun rights limiting statute, then first you look at the, the first section, which is, does it conform to the Second Amendment's words? Uh, no, it doesn't. But for some reason, then they have the second level. And the second level is 
does it conform to some historical precedent after the Second Amendment was adopted in the Bill of Rights after 1791 or at 1791 and on that could be used as a precedent to show that people at that time actually did engage in a similar kind of analog to what you're saying your statute does today in 2027. As we know, this is the year 2027, as we all know. We're looking back at the front of 2023. This is a flashback episode of Liberty Conspiracy. We've gone back in the TARDIS. It's almost the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who coming up on the 23rd. So, God bless you, Tom Baker. Thank you for all the fun. Um, so how does this, as I mentioned to Toby Lear, is like, this opens up a Pandora's box because there are plenty of examples. I'm sure that people could come up with where some sheriff or some local law enforcement guy got a drunk guy and took away his gun. And they can claim just like they might've claimed that all oh, the fugitive slave act was extant. They, they can claim, well, there it is. They did that. That doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's proper. And it certainly doesn't mean that it conformed with the Second Amendment. So they've got two, two standards that actually stand in juxtaposition. The first one, the text of the Second Amendment, is all you need. It says, shall not be infringed. So from that point on, any infringement, whether it has historical precedence from 1801 in some town or anything like that, is contrary to the wording of the Second Amendment. It's, it's, I mean, it's so stupid. I, it's so obvious. And here is the story, because this is what they're trying to get away with. Attorneys representing the Justice Department filed a brief with the U.S. Court of Appeals and the Third Circuit, which might not be too friendly to our freedoms, folks, arguing that the prohibition on firearms for marijuana users is reasonable. <laughs> Citing historical parallels to limitations placed on the mentally ill and those with chronic alcohol problems during the era when the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791, reported marijuana moment. Well, then you have to say, why is it that the Second Amendment says shall not be infringed? And it doesn't say shall not be infringed unless somebody is a habitual and chronic alcoholic or is mentally ill. Who determines what mental illness is? Just ask Thomas Saz about that. He wrote so much about the state defining what was mental illness and what was mental health. He, of course, being heralded by libertarians and, of course, passed away. Rest in peace, Dr. Saz. The latest legal action is part of the case of Eric Matthew Harris, in which the government is defending the marijuana-related ban against him after being convicted for violating the federal statute that prohibits the possession of a firearm by an individual deemed, quote, an unlawful user or addicted to any controlled substance. So they made his possession of a firearm unlawful because they made a term up called unlawful user. See how that works? You just make it up whole cloth. Well, you see, we got this term over here that we made up and it says unlawful user and that's you. So the unlawful user term applies to you. And since the unlawful term applies to you, now our next step is going to be taking your firearm away. So here is the so-called DOJ. Given the impairments caused by marijuana, 
and other illegal drugs. The temporary disarmament, disarmament of individuals who regularly use or are addicted to such drugs fits comfortably within this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. DOJ said, as explained, drug users are also more likely to use firearms to commit crimes to fund their drug habit. Uh, you know how those pot users are. Hey, man, everything's cool. But give me your money. I need pot. Oh, no, that's right. They're not like that. Yes, they have to engage in violence. Hey, how about this? They say it's part of the drug business or culture. Isn't that funny? It seems like every time you make something prohibited and people can't deal with each other above board and actually take each other to so-called courts and they have to do stuff on the black market, criminal threatening and thuggery actually enters the picture. Isn't that funny? I mean, it did it with alcohol prohibition and you could just replace that with alcohol. It's just so strange. I know it's crazy. Now, there are other stories on tap from the courts. So let's go to more court information. I want to give you a little bit of amplification on the marijuana story. Here's a little bit more. Biden's Justice Department says marijuana consumers are unlikely to store guns properly in their latest defense of the federal ban. So this last story didn't talk about that. Oh, it's about storing the guns properly. Who says what is proper storage? That's right. The government. They're assuming everything here. How do they know? The Biden administration has once again found itself in federal court defending a ban preventing people who use marijuana from buying or possessing firearms, arguing that historical precedent comfortably supports the restriction and that cannabis consumers with guns pose a unique danger to society, in part because they're unlikely to store their weapon properly before using marijuana. Do you think they said that to, uh, what was it, uh, Major Chris Christmas of the United States forces guarding the poppy fields in Afghanistan when, you know, uh, what was his name Geraldo Rivera interviewed him. Yeah, that was awesome. Wasn't it? They all had firearms. They were walking around the poppy fields. I guess firearms are okay when you're the government guarding the loot. Yes. Let's continue in a brief submitted to the U S court of appeals of that wonderful third circuit on Wednesday. Attorneys for the Justice Department responded to a series, this is last week, a series of prompts from the judges asserting that the firearm ban for marijuana consumers is justified. And the federal government has repeatedly affirmed those analogs, which must be demonstrated to maintain firearms restrictions under a recent Supreme Court ruling. Bruin! The Bruins. Little bears. They're just little bears. They're so cute. Yeah, don't let them get in your honeypot. For the case before the Third Circuit, the government is defending the ban against Eric Matthew Harris, who was convicted of violating the federal statute prohibiting the possession of a firearm by a person who is an unlawful user or addicted to any controlled substance. As the Daily Caller first reported, Harris's legal representation also submitted a supplemental brief to the court on Wednesday that broadly disputes both the substance of the conviction under the statute as well as the idea that there are relevant historical analogs. So they're trying two prongs. One is that the accusations don't actually apply because they are erroneous. Many of the government's arguments 
have been raised in prior court cases. For example, the Justice Department said that the answer to the court's question about whether habitual recreational use of marijuana can produce schizophrenic-like mental illness is yes, and for that reason, habitual drug users may lawfully be disarmed for as long as they continue to unlawfully use drugs. Can they take away their driver's licenses? How about scissors or knives or any other thing that can be used as a weapon? How about rocks? Can't go outside. You might smash somebody in the head with a rock because, you know, you're a habitual recreational user of marijuana. There's plenty more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. The Shire Free Church offers a sanctuary to those seeking an escape from state churches. The Shire Free Church is an interfaith, diverse group of people that may not share identical theological beliefs. As a member in or minister of the Shire Free Church, you are a sovereign individual and may be the faith of your choice. We don't claim to have all of the answers. We are open to all peaceful people. We want to learn from each other. What unifies the Shire Free Church and its diverse members is peace, love, and liberty. There are many paths to God, one for every individual. The Shire Free Church does not define a specific path beyond these parameters that must be your foundation. Peace as your way. Love as your guide. And liberty as your light. Learn more at church.shiresociety.com. That's church.shiresociety.com. We continue on Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Now it's time for us to get into the SCOTUS blog, everybody. More justice, so-called, stories. This from November 17th. Amy Howe, or one of her clones, because I know she works very, very hard. Here it is, and we're gonna write, we're gonna jump right into this one. As you know, this is the Chevron standard. This has to do with the EPA. And whether or not these so-called regulatory agencies can come up with their own standards beyond what the Congress put forward as their purviews. So what's being missed? As I mentioned for MRC TV, and we played the videos here on the show after they were produced by the good people at MRC TV. Oftentimes in the decisions that have led up to the Supreme Court hearing this upcoming case. They don't actually question the existence of the EPA. They don't question the existence of OSHA or other things. They just say, is this regulatory agency going beyond, through the executive branch, going beyond what Congress stipulated in the statute that created this clearly unconstitutional bureaucracy? They don't question their bureaucracy. They never do. The circuit courts don't do it. The district courts don't do it. And now I bet you anything, you're not going to see the Supreme Court do it either. And the people who are bringing these cases forward should bring this up as part of their argument, at least to educate people. At least if you've got that time in the court, bring it up and say, excuse me, um, I know that we're not going to be able to find any enumerated power in the Constitution for, say, oh, the EPA. So we just want to bring that up, and now we'll continue arguing on your front that the statute that created the EPA doesn't allow for this because it's just open-ended interpretation of the statute. 
when they could look at the open-ended interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, and say, oh, that wasn't designed for that either, just as James Madison told people in the early 1800s. But here is the story from Amy Howe. How she does it? I don't know. The Supreme Court will hear arguments in January in a pair of cases asking the justices to overrule a landmark decision on deference to federal administrative agencies. So it's about this deference that they give. Well, you've been created, so you can do whatever you want. Now, if that's insulting to people, then why also is it not insulting for Congress to just do whatever it wants? I don't understand. I don't understand their their lack of standards here, especially since they're the ones who swear their oaths to the Constitution. It's so crazy. It's it's just utterly ridiculous. It's like it's like a bunch of people have gone in to agree to play the game Monopoly, Monopoly, big time Monopoly on the ag- aggressive use of force and calling it legal. And then they replace the board with the Parcheesi board. But they're still operating they're, and they're operating. No, they're, they're using the rules for Parcheesi, but they still have the, the Monopoly board. That would be a better analogy. And it's like, uh, what game are you playing? I don't recognize this game. Ah, we're just doing what we want, making it up as we go. It's Royal Fizbin. It's Fizbin. It's Calvin Ball. So there are these big cases, two cases. There's Relentless Incorporated, the Department of Commerce, and the one that I'm more familiar with, the Loper Bright Enterprises one. I kept thinking of Mr. Mr. Hooper and Mr. Looper from Sesame Street. The Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo and the Relentless Incorporated versus Department of Commerce. So the Supreme Court has put them on their calendar for January arguments. So just about a month and month and a quarter away. So Relentless and Loper Bright began as challenges to a federal rule that requires the fishing industry. And this is a very big deal. As I mentioned, the very first article I wrote for MRC TV was about these fish counters. Okay. And the story, and we showed you video from some of the guys who are going to be bankrupt. Already, the federal government requires that fishermen have to have federal fish counters aboard their boats to count the number of fish they get and the kinds of the fish that they catch every day. Now, I thought when I first entered the story, I thought, oh, it's some sort of machine. How does this work? No, they're literally human beings that who bunk up with them when they go out. If they have to go out overnight for multiple days, eating the food with them out there on the boats with these guys, and then they have to count the types of fish. Up to this point, the federal government paid their salaries. We, through the federal government, we, of course, because, you know, we clearly volunteered that money as the terrorists know. We're all part of the decision, right? It was fun. I remember that. Don't you remember that? That was fun, Lake of Heaven. So you remember that, don't you? Don't you remember? Yeah, that's a great scene from Lathe of Heaven. So now the Department of Commerce, they want to force the fishermen to have to pay the $700 to $800 a day that these federal fish counters require. I mean, you know, isn't there a stipulation in the Constitution that says there should be no quartering? of soldiers this is the quartering of the commerce department soldiers 
It's already the quartering of it, as Jeremy the quartering might say. But there's more. The justices will consider a broader question. So, so at the, uh, so let me go back. Whether or not a federal, there's a challenge to this new federal rule that will require the fishing industry to pay the cost of observers who monitor compliance with fishery management rules. Oh, we set the rules, you know. And again, they do it claiming they're doing it for the betterment of the fishing industry to manage the catch so it doesn't get overcaught. Well, why in the world would the people whose livelihoods depend on that try to deplete the stuff? that eventually they want to use for years down the line. They have to husband it properly. That's, as I mentioned, where private property rights on the oceans, just like private property rights for forests, to husbands the forests, or any other natural resource come into play. And you can look to the lobster, lobster fishermen of Maine who have done it themselves for centuries there. They have their own system. The fishermen do the same thing. They show where they can go, even though fish move around. They know where the fish go. They know what the patterns are for the fish. They know the numbers per year that they can typically catch, the size of the fish that they're catching, where it's a danger threshold. Say, okay, you know what? we got to lay off here. What's happening? What are you getting? What are you getting? They can make these arrangements. And if somebody doesn't want to conform, then as the lobster thieves do, they engage in vigilante justice. They don't need the government to participate in this thing. And it makes all of us have to pay more for fish. If you're a pescator, you know what I'm talking about. So a little bit more at the arguments on January 17th, the justices will consider a broader question, whether to overrule the 1984 Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council. And this is where this standard of great leniency came from. The court held that when a federal statute is ambiguous, courts should defer to an agency's interpretation of the law as long as it is so-called reasonable. So again, we go back to that behind-closed-doors meeting I had in the state of New Hampshire capital with a former New Hampshire chief justice who then became a congressman as they were debating what to put into a statute and so on. He goes, oh, well, just put the word reasonable in there. Somebody said, what? He goes, oh, reasonable. It's, it's a legalese term. We put reasonable in there because it basically gives the government complete room to do whatever it wants. I'm like, you're a Republican conservative? What is what? Reasonable. Because, of course, who determines what's reasonable? It's Calvin Ball. It's Fisbin. The government determines what's reasonable. And here it's going to be the members of the Supreme Court. You don't get to determine what's reasonable. The fishermen don't get to determine what's reasonable for their own stinking livelihoods and their own boats. No. They don't get to do that. People who don't engage in fishing, some people who don't like fish, people who are taking our money for this under our name are doing this to the fishermen. Just like under our name, they're doing it to people in Gaza in a much more extreme way, destroying their homes, destroying their schools, destroying their lives. That doctrine known as the Chevron doctrine has been the target of criticism by, among others, some Supreme Court justices in recent years. But the Biden administration has told the justices that overruling Chevron would be convulsive. Convulsive. (laughs) Okay. All right. We've got a couple big things of probably higher profile to discuss when we talk about the courts. Yesterday, thanks to you, 
carrying the ball for a while on the show last night, we got to discuss the January 6th footage that was released. I got to mention that originally I was wondering why Tucker Carlson didn't put out some of the stuff. And then I found out as I investigated during the day, Tucker was not given the video. He was allowed to look at the video only for a certain period of time. So that's part of his, uh, his excuse, I think. And, and I think it's just about excuse. Um, you know, that's why we only saw the, the Q shaman perhaps. Right. But anyway, so I give him an out on that, you know, uh, and this is going to have a massive bearing. This release of this video footage. We also saw the fakery from Nancy Pelosi's daughter shooting a documentary on that day in that locale inside and the retakes that they did of some senators sitting there talking to Mike Pence over the phone, talking about how we can get back to the count on January 6, 2021. Right. But I want to show you what I think is really, really sums it up. And that's Ron Paul. It's about four plus minutes. I'm just going to sit back. I want to play this for you. If you didn't get a chance to see it, I think Ron Paul did a phenomenal job here. Let's check this out. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Weekly Report. We must demand justice for the January 6th protesters. New U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson struck a blow for liberty and justice last week when he finally authorized the release of all the tapes from the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. We were told by no less than President Biden himself that this was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. The FBI was unleashed by the Biden administration to hunt down hundreds of participants in this insurrection and lock them up in the gulag where they awaited trial in torturous conditions, many in solitary confinement. A congressional committee was set up under then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi to get to the bottom of the Trump-led insurrection. It did not include a single representative nominated by the opposition Republican Party, but rather two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who could be relied on by Pelosi and the Democrats to toe the line. In short, the whole thing was an old-fashioned Soviet show trial where the evidence was kept secret and the predetermined verdict, guilty, was to be used to tighten the grip of the ruling regime and intimidate any further dissenters into silence. The message was clear. Speak out against the perfection of the 2020 election, and you may find yourself in the gulag along with the insurrectionists. It was terrifying and profoundly anti-American. And as we finally conceived for ourselves, thanks to Speaker Johnson, it was a huge lie. The new video shows demonstrators shaking hands with police officers once they entered the Capitol building. They were welcomed into the building by officers who even held the doors for them to enter. They had no way of knowing that they would soon be rounded up and locked away. Does that mean no crimes were committed on January 6th? Not at all. The tapes already released were carefully chosen to single out examples of violence and other possible criminality. 
But the full release of the tapes demonstrates beyond a doubt that the endless propaganda that was this was a coordinated attempt to overthrow the government was false. And as for that violence and mayhem on January 6th, how much of it was instigated by undercover FBI agents? New footage clearly shows officers outside the building firing on protesters with no warning. That must be why in hearing after hearing, Biden administration officials like Attorney General Merrick Garland have refused to tell Congress the number of federal agents present and their roles in instigating violence. The release of this evidence should immediately result in the release of all nonviolent protesters awaiting trial or serving their sentences. Those in power responsible for promoting this lie should take their places in their jail cells. This delayed justice will not help protesters like Matthew Perna. Though the new video release clearly shows him calmly walking inside the Capitol in the presence of unconcerned police officers when Merrick Garland's Department of Justice announced they would seek terrorism charges against him. Perna, in despair, decided to hang himself in his garage. Yes, there was an insurrection of sorts. Those in power hated Donald Trump so much that they were willing to torture and even murder their fellow Americans to keep him from the presidency. Unless these people are brought to justice, we will have no republic left to defend. Thanks for listening. Good job, Ron Paul. Good stuff, Ron Paul. Really appreciate uh, the fact that he and the team isolated that and put that out there on the Ron Paul uh, Rumble channel so that people could see it and they could also recognize that there was uh, plenty of evidence that showed wrongdoing on the part of the government and not these people. Uh, Wrongdoing on the part of people like this jerk, Adam Kinzinger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you to my colleagues on the committee. Thank you to our witnesses. Uh, I never expected a day to be quite as emotional for me as it has been. Oh, yeah, yeah. So emotional there, Adam. We know how broken up you were about those people just, you know, strolling through. And uh, let's watch some of them strolling along here. Oh, this is where they took the handcuffs off and fist pumped. Had a grand old time. Was this guy working for the government and released after they discussed it? And they, oh, I got the wrong guy. Or it was just a guy. And he went in. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, see you later. That was fun. Thanks for the tour. Who knows, right? Who knows? And Ron Paul mentioned what we saw right here. This man originally agreed to a plea deal, and then the federal government decided, no, we're going to charge him with terrorism. And what happened? He decided he couldn't take it anymore, and he hanged himself. Ron Paul, good job. Thank you, Ron Paul, for being a stand-up guy. Awesome, awesome stuff. Now let's talk a little bit about Unhinged. 
You know, we, we saw Kathy Hochul discussing misinformation. And yet we see people like AOC making her claims about hiding in the bathroom on January 6th. And we see Kinzinger, oh, I'm so upset. And we find out about the information that they did not release. We know what they did during Cowabunga 19, so-called pandemic. We know what they did when the FBI was paying off Twitter, the back door to Facebook. We know what Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger have revealed and so many others. And people at MRC TV, I have written on this to a much, um, much more lower profile because I was writing about a lot of the things that Taibbi was writing about as well. And uh, so let's look at one of the pop media figures now who is just inflamed about something. He is, of course, Joe Scarborough. And listen to what this guy's got to say about imprisoning people. And again, I am not a supporter of Donald Trump. But Molly Hemingway, well-known conservative writer, brought this up. She did a great job, and other people are bringing it up as well. Hashtag projection, big time. She says, Joe Scarborough, in an unhinged rant, asserts without evidence that Donald Trump will do what Democrats have been doing during the Biden administration. Precisely right. Here we go. I've gone through about eight seconds of it. Here we go. That are constantly uh, double shilling and triple checking and shilling for him and suggesting Sick. that somehow they're being biased, bending over backwards, treating him like a normal candidate. He's not a normal candidate. He is running to end American democracy as we know it. He's uh, I saw I think it was Scott Horton posted this and I saw Scarborough's arm, the palsy weird thing in his arm. Obviously, what he's doing is he's so fired up this Scarborough Joe. Uh, I said, did he uh, does he have did he have too much coffee morning, Joe? Or is that uh, is that a palsy problem that he's adopted? Maybe Pfizer can create a medicine that can take care of that for him. But, yeah, he's very upset uh, at Trump supporters here. And um, listen, not only is he upset and not recognizing his massive hypocrisy, along with, of course, the daughter of Zbigniew Brzezinski, Mr. Internationalist. Hey, let's connect with the radical Muslim guys in Afghanistan, give them stinger missiles, and then try to overthrow all these different nation states on the grand chessboard. Yeah, that would be uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, her father. But Joe Scarborough, and don't ask Joe about the dead intern in his office when he was a congressman. Shh, quiet. Her name shall not be repeated. Um, let's just go back here and watch as he flips out and his arm shakes because he's so angry and upset about the fact that he sees Donald Trump as being ready to imprison everybody without cause. To, to really to tune out the voices of of the haters, of, of the people that are constantly uh, double shilling and triple and checking and shilling for him and suggesting Sick. that somehow they're being biased, bending over backwards, treating him like a normal candidate. He's not a normal candidate. He is running to end American democracy as we know it. He's an authoritarian. So we can pause it right there. You know, democracy, which the United States is not designed to be and which, of course, even if it were, that would be a really, really bad idea. Mr. Scarborough, you seem to think that democracy, some giant plebiscite, is some sort of cipher to the uh, upholding of people's rights, which is the exact opposite. The state doesn't uphold people's rights. 
And it doesn't matter whether you have a monarch deciding it or a so-called democracy deciding it. But at least, as I've mentioned, as Tolkien mentioned, as other people like Hoppe have mentioned, at least if it's a monarch making the decisions, you run that distinction between the ruler and the ruled. You don't try to pretend that it's the people. But in the United States, it's not even a democracy anyway, Joe. You swore an oath to the Constitution when you were a congressman. Remember? That was before your intern was found dead in your office. But, you know, um, the Constitution is a constitutional republic, not a democracy. But everybody knows that, evidently, except you. We'll return with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. We return with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Find us every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on Rumble and Rockman. Just look for Liberty Conspiracy. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, the creator of The Conspiracy, and thanks for being interested in the principles of freedom. Because, of course, freedom is out of fashion nowadays. Now, continuing with our conversation about Joe Scarborough flipping out and his hypocrisy. To a, a court uh, in, in Colorado two days ago ruled that, that he led an insurrection against the United States government. Okay, and that is false. Uh, the court did not rule that he led an insurrection against the United States government. That's not what the court ruled, so he's got that factually wrong. But now let's look at the final bit. He's charged with leading schemes to help overthrow the United States government. So, so if they want to frame it, uh, that way, that's fine. If, if you want to be fair, if you want to be fair, then you will frame this uh, as uh, Joe Biden being the candidate that supports American democracy and Donald Trump, a candidate who supports a new form of government here that's authoritarian. It's really that simple. And by the way, Reverend Al, when people go, oh. So, okay. So as we know, Donald Trump is not lily clean here. Donald Trump put forward the emergency order, which was not constitutional. He put forward that that was on the COVID so-called medical emergency, March 13th, 2020. He put forward the Operation Warp Speed, which was unconstitutional. He engaged in foreign military conflicts and in the occupation of Syria, unconstitutional. He engaged in droning of people without any jurisprudence whatsoever, which is a war crime. So there's a lot of problems with Donald, you know who, Trump. And all the subsidies, the PPP, all that stuff, having the uh, FDA control whether or not landlords could collect rent, uh, that was under Donald Trump, uh, giving the uh, Federal Reserve the power to buy the bonds of any company without announcing it, that was under Donald Trump, and he applauded all that stuff. Those are substantive areas where you could say, yeah, that was pretty tyrannical, unconstitutional and nasty. But then to claim that Joe Biden is somehow the angel when you've got all these things that we just saw remembering about the lockdowns, about Biden's orders to have jab mandates for truckers going over the borders and uh, restricting things like uh uh, people's ability to be able to uh, use uh, foreign oil from Russia, supplying weapons to Ukraine, uh, not calling Israel out for destroying innocent people's lives in Gaza, and, of course, what they're doing to the January Sixers. 
all of that stuff seems not to bother this guy. Oh, you can't compare him to past Nazi leaders. You can't compare him to this past Nazi leader or that past fascist leader. Okay, so now it it would be very interesting if Joe Scarborough could talk to, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, Lindsey Graham or uh, or Victoria Nuland or Jeffrey Pyatt or or, uh, Amy Klobuchar or any of the others who literally met with Ukrainian Nazis after the United States government and NATO and the Atlantic Council and George Soros splinter groups and the CIA and others during the Obama administration overthrew the government of Ukraine and worked with Nazis there. And then, of course, we saw eight years of thousands of people being slaughtered by Nazi-tied government there. But that being said... I want to give you, hold on a second here. I want to give you a little bit of info. And I've got to call up Howie Carr from Howie Carr. Oh, and it's, it's recently gold. 800 I don't know whether I'll be able to pull this up. I think I can. Hold on a second here. Um, yeah, I think I can. Let me see. Of the pandemic may prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history. Yeah, here we go. So uh, let's just keep in mind some of the crazy things that have been done to us under people like starting with, you know who, Trump and Biden. So here's Howie. The school closures that took 50 million children out of classrooms at the start of the pandemic may prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history of American education. I don't think there's too much question about it, is there? And I think, you know, Everybody knew it at the time who was paying attention, who who didn't just want to take a year or two years vacation uh, from the classroom or the courtroom or their hack jobs in government. Everybody knew this was a scam. It set student progress in math and reading back by two decades. And again, we all knew this, but now they're admitting it. This is the and New York Times. the achievement gap that separates poor and wealthy children. The learning losses will remain unaddressed when the federal money runs out in 2024. The, the federal government is what caused this, by and large. So they, 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 they threw money at it to, uh, to, to give the teachers vacation, to, to have all these uh, boondoggle projects to, uh, to supposedly safeguard the the uh, schools themselves it was it was all a total waste of money because the uh the, it the uh it set student progress in math and reading back by two decades and widened the achievement gap that cel- that separates poor and wealthy children it will cause students, the students will experience, I read, read that before, it, ex, it caused students to experience diminished lifetime earnings and become a significant drag on the economy. Much like all the uh, adults who, who were told to go home from work and they'd be given plenty of welfare and they wouldn't have to pay their rent and their student loans. All right, I'm going to stop it there. And there's a lot more to hear from Howie, but uh, might do that tomorrow night. But I want to mention that when we look at that education thing, we know that the National Teachers Union, uh, very, very involved with the Biden administration and in pushing during the Trump administration to keep things locked down. 
to not have kids go. And parents who tried to attend school board meetings, whether it was because of content that they saw that was upsetting them, or it was because they were sick and tired of the schools being shut down in their local communities, which again, we go towards, again, the tragedy of the commas because some people might have wanted them locked down and other parents didn't want them locked down. So because it's run by the government, not everybody is going to be pleased and not even people who have kids in the school system are going to be paying for it. Right. But the Biden administration was deeply involved in promoting the idea that those parents who attended those school board meetings were dangerous. They errantly and unceremoniously and immorally tried to get the justice so-called department that we saw before the justice department which they want to continue going after marijuana users the justice department and the fbi coordinated and tried to work with the national school boards association literally sending emails and letters to each other to try to create a narrative whereby under the biden administration People would be depicted as terrorist threats. I didn't hear Joe Scarborough discussing that. Did you? No. They want to control the narrative. They want to paint people as terrible and evil. And they want to do everything they can to control what we see and what we do. Now let's go into that area of control. There's a good story from Activist Post that I think originally was from Epic Times and went one day after the uh, after the exclusive. And so Activist Post has it. IMF releases digital currency handbook for world's central banks. Control the narrative. Control the banks. It's CBDC time. It's CBDC time. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, for which the United States government subsidizes tons and tons of money, released a handbook for global central banks regarding the development and implementation of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. The IMF Central Bank Digital Currency Virtual Handbook link published last week pointed out that the increased use of CBDCs can reduce, there's the link, reduce dollarization of the global economy, a situation where countries move away from relying on the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. De-dollarization would push up borrowing costs in the United States, making loans expensive for businesses and individuals, thus affecting economic growth. Well, it would be a lot smarter if people would get away from the dollar and go with hard currency, as Wire would say. But in addition to de-dollarization, a CBDC, quote, could increase risks of flight to safety from retail bank deposits in periods of market stress. Well, they don't want that. The organization pointed out that CBDCs could offer, quote, a safe store of value and efficient means of payment, which can increase competition for deposit funding. But it has to be mandated. The IMF handbook was published as the organization's director, Kristalina Georgieva, promoted the use of CBDCs during the Singapore FinTech Festival on November 15th, arguing that such digital currencies could bring an end to the cash-based economy that they can't track. 
that they can't trace, that they can't control, and of course, the users of which they cannot silence, as they did in Canada when they didn't like the narrative, as people tried to fight for their freedoms in Ottawa with the trucker rally. CBDCs can replace cash, which is costly to distribute in island economies, she said during a speech. Every economy is an island in a way. CBDCs, and the more open they are, the better. CBDCs would offer a safe and low-cost alternative to cash. Uh Uh-huh. A potential risk of retail CBDCs is that funds get pulled out from traditional commercial banks and deposited as CBDCs in central banks. The depletion of deposits will affect the lending ability of commercial banks, possibly worsening any banking crisis. Well, what do they want? They want to allow for the printing of CBDCs at any time. And they want the CBDCs to go international, to the international banks first. This is what they want at the IMF. They want to prevent the U.S. Federal Reserve. Well, there's a second. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so this is this is the opposition to it. I was skipping ahead. Um, this is a representative Republican from Minnesota, Tom Emmer. He has the CBDC Anti-Surveillance State Act. In a September 12th press release, Mr. Emmer pointed out that unlike decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, CBDCs are designed and issued by a government and transact on a digital ledger that is controlled by the government. This could give the administration the power to, quote, surveil Americans' transactions and choke out politically unpopular activity. And they have to. They have to do that. It's the only way they can control it. Otherwise, people will flood away from it. It prevents the U.S. Federal Reserve, the bill, prevents the U.S. Federal Reserve from issuing a CBDC directly to individuals. It prohibits the Fed from indirectly issuing a CBDC to individuals via an intermediary. And it bans the Fed from using any CBDC to implement its monetary policy. But as I mentioned at MRC TV, you notice what is missing. The U.S. Treasury. According to the Constitution, the Treasury can issue coins, not the exclusive money, but it can it can coin money, not digital money, not CBDCs. But the Treasury, under their interpretation, uh, their interpretation can just make up money. So the fact that this man from Minnesota is not blocking the feds from just making money up at any time is a pretty big deal because. That is what the U.S. Treasury has used for years. Digital money is essentially invented by the Federal Reserve that they use to buy up U.S. debt to fund all their wars, to fund so not all the wars, but 90 percent of the funding and the rest comes from taxation to fund sending weapons to Ukraine, to fund sending weapons to Israel and cash infusions to Israel to the tune of three point eight billion dollars in weapons alone over the past 10 years. Plus, I don't know how many billions in financial aid gone to the the socialist nation of Israel. By the way, Israel, they say, has a uh, a surplus this year. Oh, okay. So that is a pretty substantial thing to see. And talking about Israel, let's turn now to this story. It comes to us with a little bit of a positive. Breitbart reports the Israeli government approves 
a deal for a four-day pause for 50 hostages. The Israeli government approved a deal Tuesday night that will see the Palestinian Hamas so-called terror group, as they claim it, but they don't claim that the Israeli government is a terrorist organization, that is an, it is an occupier organization. So they both are, in my eyes, that they release 50 female children and elderly hostages over four days in return for a pause in the fighting in the Gaza Strip. In return, Israel will release a greater number of convicted Palestinians, though none who have been convicted of murder. Convicted of what? Breitbart's not reporting. Joel Pollack not giving us any real information. Israel will resume the fight as soon as the hostages are delivered and a four-day period is over as it works to destroy Hamas. But as we noted, it means flooding the southern region of Gaza with refugees and, of course, bombing that area. Unbelievable. We saw Max and Aaron of the Gray Zone reporting on some of the things that are being done to those people in Gaza. We've seen this before. Uh, We know some of the statements of Israeli officials have to do with just wiping out Gaza, getting rid of everybody and taking all that land. And of course, we know that the imposition of Israel in 1947-48 there took away land from all sorts of people who had been established there for generations. So an occupying force is Israel. How that's not terroristic, I don't know. But evidently, Breitbart doesn't have a problem with that. Because, of course, they're more along with the the rhinos on that, the deep staters on that, right? The hawks. Let's go to antiwar.com and check out some of the latest war information. And then I have a very, very strong inclination. I want to join you and get your thoughts and get your thoughts about programming for tomorrow and potentially for Thanksgiving. So let me get your opinions on this. But first, I want to let you know about that information from Iraq that I mentioned. Yeah, the U.S. has attacked Iraq, you know, where the U.S. has bases and would not leave, even though the Iraqi government has asked them to leave. No, can't do that. U.S. AC-130 gunship launches strikes in Iraq. Casualties reported. That would be CENTCOM. And if you say CENTCOM in many foreign nations, they'll probably look at you as being a really nasty person. CENTCOM said Tuesday that a U.S. AC-130 gunship launched strikes in Iraq against people allegedly responsible, eh, nothing like extrajudicial murder, for an earlier missile attack in the Ain al-Assad air base in western Iraq, which houses U.S. troops. Well, you know, I mean, they evidently are accused of attacking U.S. troops. Got to defend. Got to defend, even though they're not supposed to be there. Right? Yeah. The Pentagon said you don't have a right to defense if you're in a place where you're not supposed to be. That's like breaking into somebody's home and saying, oh, I had a right to defend myself. No, you don't. You don't. The Pentagon said eight troops were wounded when Ain al-Assad Air Base was targeted, and you don't have the right to defend yourself with weapons that you got through stealing from my neighbor and forcing him to pay for those weapons, Mafia man. The Pentagon said eight U.S. troops were wounded when Ain al-Assad Air Base was targeted with a short-range ballistic missile and that the AC-130 responded immediately. I wonder if those are weapons that the United States left behind in Afghanistan, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? CENTCOM said the AC-130 strikes strike strike 
resulted in, they have a double there, several enemy casualties. Oh, well, there you go. A U.S. official later told the war zone that the strikes killed at least one member of Kataib Hezbollah, an Iraqi Shia militia. Well, then I'm sure it's perfectly all right. And the United States is not engaging in any illegal operations in any way whatsoever. And, you know, the fact that it's totally unconstitutional. Shh, you didn't see anything, you guys. Okay, yeah, you didn't see anything. Also at anti-war, Lloyd Austin is in the news. He visited Ukraine because, you know, it's the 58th state. He announced a hundred million dollars in arms, million dollars, because, you know, it's that drag down, draw down, drip down authority for the drips. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin made an unannounced visit to Kiev on Monday, where he announced a new $100 million weapons package for Ukraine and insisted the U.S. would provide long-term support for the war against Russia which Ukraine is soon going to be ending because they can't keep going, despite growing signs to the contrary. Yes, I announced today another $100 million. Wouldn't it be great to have $100 million? What would you do with that? I announced today another $100 million drawdown using presidential drawdown authority. You know, you know that drawdown authority to provide additional artillery munitions additional interceptors for air defense, and a number of anti-tank weapons as well. Oh, that's awesome. Austin told reporters, I wish it were like Steve Austin, the $6 million man, you know? That'd be great. You could talk to Oscar Goldman, you know, his code name. It was uh, Lone Wolf, and Oscar's name, uh, code name was Snow White. Snow White to Lone Wolf. Snow White to Lone Wolf. That was the way they communicated. It was awesome. Six mil. Where's Lindsey Wagner when you need her? Ah, yes. The presidential drawdown authority. Well, you know, it allows the U.S. to ship weapons to Ukraine directly from Pentagon stockpiles. That's awesome. And then those stockpiles need to be replenished. And BAE Systems and Lockheed Martin, they all do great. So hope you got your stock. Hope you got your stock. Hey, Rockfin, want to see what's happening? And I want to get your opinions on a couple things. First off, hey, whoa, right off the bat, MJ Nichols. Hey, MJ, thank you very much. Happy Eve of Thanksgiving Eve, guard. Are you doing Liberty Conspiracy on Thursday? Uh, sorry to say that in a weird way. Are you doing Liberty Conspiracy on Thursday? Sorry, I missed the pro. Uh, sorry if I missed the programming note. Actually, yeah, you're you're thinking along lines that I was thinking. I think I'm going to do a show Thursday. I think we're going to be having dinner early enough that um I can probably settle down for a little while and, and do some things with y'all and maybe again open up chat and just you know throw the link in there if you want to pop in like you know just hanging out and calling on a, like a Zoom call or whatever. Um, that would be really fun. Um, so yeah, I think I am going to do it. I'll know a little better tomorrow. So yeah. And then on Saturday, of course I wouldn't be on, but on Saturday, my schedule is going to get kind of weird. I didn't realize, um, we have tickets to see Wolf Mother in Boston and I hope I can make it. Sometimes I haven't gone to concerts cause I haven't felt well enough. So I'm hoping I can go cause I really want to see Wolf Mother. Uh, very cool. Good old. Good old down from the other side of the world, those Aussies. Good stuff. And Birdhouse Blues says, Thanksgiving stream, Yahoo. Hey, cool. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Risha M says, kick Israel out of the belt and road. Mm, good point. Um, oh, and by the way, you know what's interesting? I see how 9000 has a couple interesting comments. Um, there was, yeah, I'll go into it later. I need to do a little bit more research before I even, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it later. Um, so yeah, this a story from antiwar.com, I tell you. You know, it's 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 so strange. I I know a woman who works for BAE Systems, really nice woman, and a buddy of mine could have become a drone pilot. And he's like, mm, I don't think we're going to do that. And I'm so glad that he didn't do it. You know, he made the right decision. But you just think, like, man, so many people are attached to this war machine. You know, and you know, they think they're defending the United States. I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. Just crazy. I don't know. Just just nutty stuff. It's all about favoritism control. And if you can get, you know, certain industries attached, you know, look at, um, I mean, just look at like Joe Biden with his, uh, with his push using the Defense Production Act to push for these heat pump things. You know, I read that, uh, I, we showed the story yesterday and I've got the new story, uh, that they just produced for MRC TV in video form of the text that I read last night. Now I'll show it to you. If you want to see the, the finished result, it's Liberty conspiracy on free talk live. We return with Liberty conspiracy on free talk live. Find the conspiracy every Monday through Friday at 6 PM. Eastern time on rumble and rock and now let's take the opportunity to go back in time. You know, tomorrow is, of course, the anniversary of Doctor Who, the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Tom Baker has been dominating Twitter. It's been out of control, 90 years old. The guy's unbelievable. Uh, all sorts of quotes during the time period when Doctor Who was pretty much run by libertarians back in the 70s. Uh, very, very cool. And they even mentioned on the episode, The Android Invasion, the doctor has a long association with libertarian causes. And that was done in like 1978. So let's go back even further in time, however. Let's go back now to, yes, not just the era of Star Trek, but even earlier than that. It's time for us to explore with Chris Graves, our mind meld guest, the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. John F. Kennedy, sir. I must try to mind meld with it. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. He is with us. He is the mighty, the awesome, the honest Chris Graves. Welcome to the program, Chris. I hope I'm not bringing you in too late, my man. I know you've got a really busy night tonight, and you can't even be with us straight up through to 8 o'clock. You've got so many things happening. Thank you, and welcome to the show once more, my friend. How you doing, buddy? I love you, man. This is great. Uh, Thanks, man. Thank you. And uh, again, uh, my apologies on that text. I want to say this on the air, folks. I, I went to text Chris last night 
And for some reason, I guess I didn't send the text. I went to sleep. I had this whole long thing, and it didn't even send until like this afternoon. Chris, great to have you here. If I can, Chris, I'd like to start things off tonight. And feel free if you have a different idea. Um, but I'd like to start things off by reading a little something from uh, a piece that I got from the Future Freedom Foundation from yeah. 20... Yeah, okay, this is from 2013, and it comes to us via Tim Kelly. He's a columnist. Uh, he's a policy advisor with the Fre- Future Freedom Foundation. Uh, he's been um, involved with all sorts of things uh, with radio. He's a political cartoonist as well. So he wrote, Why Was JFK Assassinated? And he goes through a lot of things about RFK Jr., RFK Jr., and so on and so forth. Um, then he says, what has made many question, what has made many question the Warren Commission's credibility is the fact that it was largely controlled by former CIA director Alan Dulles. Oh, and what a class act he was. President Kennedy had ousted Dulles as director of the CIA in 1961 after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. And as you brought up last time you were here with those wonderful ships, Zapata, Zapata, and Barbara. I don't know what they could be referring to. Uh, Kennedy had also reportedly voiced his intention to splinter the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. From the moment of its release in 1964, the Warren Report became a target of criticism, owing largely to such difficulties as its single bullet theory, which appeared to twist the laws of physics. As Mark Lane, a pioneer in JFK assassination research, noted, quote, the only way you can believe the report is not to have read it, end quote. Another reason to doubt the report's conclusions is Oswald's apparent connections to the U.S. intelligence community, an important detail not mentioned in the report's 889 pages. After all, if Oswald was a low-level intelligence agent, as a large body of evidence suggests, is it reasonable to believe he was the lone nut assassin of Warren Commission legend? But even if Oswald was the gunman and was able to get off two miraculously accurate shots, he didn't have the power to withdraw the police motorcycle escorts or to order the Secret Service to stand down, or to alter the testimony of funeral home staff who received the body. The Warren Commission never explained these systemic breakdowns that left the president vulnerable and the chain of evidence questionable. Chris Graves, welcome to the show, my friend. Good to have you here. Any thoughts on that? And what are some of the first things that come to mind here on the 60th anniversary of that day when JFK was assassinated. Well, Tim Kelly is absolutely correct. Um, like Oswald didn't have the power to change the parade route, you know, uh, the very risky, very wide turn on to Elm street by William Greer, the driver. Um, he also couldn't have had William Greer step on the brakes for about two to four seconds between uh, whoever you asked back then, uh, well over 100 witnesses to that limo stop. That's not in the extent, is that how you pronounce it? The mm. inexistence is a Pruder film as we have it today. You don't see that limo stop. But over 100 witnesses uh, in the plaza were witness to that. And yeah. you can actually see it in some of the footage from um, the Orville Nix 
film from across the street, the uh, opposite direction of Abraham Zapruder, you can see the brake light goes on. Um, but even other people, I mean, that's not a popular thing to bring up with the JFK community research people. Um, the idea that all these other films besides the Zapruder film could have been tampered with, even though the owners of said films that I'm mentioning had said that they their films were returned, but not how they originally were. Yeah. Um, even Orville Nix's granddaughter, who I've tried to get on... Um, I protest with Donald Jeffries a couple of times and even my own shows. She, uh, she sued the government to get, um, to get the untampered Orville Nix film back. And, uh, was she successful? Have... Not really. No, no, of course. So much. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, I know. And by the way, let's mention Chris, uh, Chris Graves is our guest folks here on Liberty conspiracy. Uh, how can people find you the best way to find you, Chris? And your work, by the way, especially your Rumble channel, your Twitter feed, that sort of thing. Well, I'm at uh, C. Graves Mask Guy. If you want to find me, I'm there. And I have a Rumble channel. It's Digging Chris Graves. And that's the only place you're going to find my work um, out there. And please support it. And I appreciate everyone who has supported it. And it's under Digging Chris Graves. I know it's not, I mean, it's a cutesy little title there, but that's my oh, Rumble great. channel. That's my Rumble channel, and I have uh, three different shows on FreeWorld.fm if I can ever get the technology to cooperate. So, so I'm excited about those. But um, yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah, that's going to be great. I got a Substack and everything too, but I got to work on that. And uh, right now, I'm putting everything together. It's kind of overwhelming. So I appreciate you asking me that and letting me. Uh, oh, tell yeah, me absolutely. I it, it go to at Seagraves Mass Guy. Very, very key. And please remember, remember, folks, digging Chris Graves. That is the Rumble channel, and there's so much information there. And, of course, Chris has such a vast background in researching all sorts of stories that are often covered up by the mainstream press or not investigated by them and has worked with Don Jeffries numerous times. Don Jeffries is well-known for his Hidden Histories books and things like that and recently Masking the Truth and just recently put out another book about the JFK assassination. And there is a fourth, uh, third and fourth or fourth book coming out in the series uh, for Hidden History, uh, and you're involved in researching on that one too, right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that actually has become very overwhelming for Don, I think, with all the stuff that Peter Sikosh, the better researcher, uh, by the way, and myself have sent him. He had so much stuff that he had to split it up into a three and a four. Oh, so, I see. So that's how it's working. I got it. Yeah. So in wow. the fourth one, in the fourth one, I know this for a fact because he has told me a lot of the spree shootings uh, information, like Vegas and things like that, and um, a certain school in Connecticut that will get you banned from certain platforms if you even mention the name. Like there's yes. a lot of stuff like that that's in there, and uh, we got you know in Hidden History three, I was able to dig up a couple of things on uh, JFK Jr. Uh, which became a real passion uh, research thing for me after uh, reading a lot of the stuff that Don wrote in the original Hidden History. And I actually went to Martha's Vineyard during the lockdowns. And yeah. I, I went around to some of the locations like uh, the Red Gate Farm that Jackie Kennedy used to own that she left to John Jr. and Caroline in her will. And actually, you could have you could have actually seen John's plane 
get blown out of the sky from the Redgate farm. And I say blown mm. out of the sky because there are witnesses to that. Yeah. I saw an explosion in the sky and those witnesses we've been trying to track down for forever. And I don't think we ever will, but there yeah, and were, you, and you, I know you mentioned he was in touch with the tower and he was getting ready to land. Yeah. With a guy named buddy Wyatt, who uh, is now retired. I won't say where he is now, but yeah, he, uh, he, he was in the tower when John jr. Was requesting landing instructions. Mm. So he, you know, and then, and then moments later, he goes spiraling into the ocean, into the drink, you know? Yeah, absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. He was a competent pilot. He had been through those sorts of uh, conditions before. And the conditions were clearing when he would come down. They, they would have been much better for him. So he was the, he was the, totally the media, in the... The media machine totally... Uh, it's, it's When you go back and look at all the... Like Pat Shannon was another researcher I actually had on my show Get Mad last year. Yeah. Uh, or later, earlier this year. And he was boots on the ground himself, uh, he, like years before Hidden History. Even he was uh, him and John um, John Quinn, who used to go by the moniker Newshawk in the late nineties. They both did a lot of fantastic reporting on JFK Jr.'s murder. I'm convinced it was murder because and you Bill said Cooper, that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. This is uh, something I really know a little a thing or two about. Yeah, I get excited. Not, it's not exciting. That sounds horrible. I, it's a, a tragedy. Uh, it gets it gets you gets you charged up. There's so much information and so much wrongness yeah. to this, you know. And, and big from media, the assassination, media. exactly. And so many of the people associated with covering it up and inspiring the assassination. So many terrible people and bad actions here. They even they even cut out six hours from the archives of WCVB Channel That's, Five in Boston. They went up into New Hampshire and Bill Cooper at the time, the late William Cooper, who was murdered uh, shortly after nine eleven. Yeah, he was able to have people working for him to go up to that archives and get the original broadcast of WCVB, and that's how John, people like John Hankey, who made a documentary on the assassination of JFK Jr., was able to get that footage because of people like Bill Cooper getting the uncensored, uncut footage where Todd Bergen, Coast Guard official, talks to Susan Warnick, who I've met a few times, yep. and, and relays that uh, final, uh, final message from John Jr., and uh, Chet Curtis brings it up. He's no longer with us either, but they they mentioned in that six hours of cut footage that there was an explosion in the sky and that Steve Sprasia, who I've contacted too, and so has Don, he, uh, he confirmed that there was a Martha's Vineyard Gazette reporter who had sandy hair. He was kind of an older guy. He said he was walking on Philbin Beach that night, July 16th, 1999, saw an explosion in the sky, and Martha's Vineyard Gazette to this day will not acknowledge that they ever had such a person working for them. Well, all. you know, that live footage, I remember seeing some of that live footage from WCVB that day. Chet Curtis being one of their news anchors, married to Natalie Jacobson. They were both news anchors for decades there, very well known in Boston. And oh, yeah. uh, as we mentioned, Mike Taibbi, Matt Taibbi's father, worked at WCVB with them, part of that news team. And uh, that footage was stored in New Hampshire. They had a copy of it in New Hampshire because the both- archives. Yeah. Exactly. WMUR-TV Channel 9, which is an ABC affiliate, is was owned by the same Hearst Corporation as WCVB in Boston, just off of Route 28 in Needham, Massachusetts. So yeah. they got rid of it. They tried to get rid of it at the place where they were broadcasting for Channel 5, but whoever got rid of it forgot 
about the New Hampshire affiliate up there. So that was yeah. very smart to get that footage from New Hampshire. And people like Susan Warnick, which I don't blame her. I'd be scared too. Yeah. And Chuck Curtis, when he was still alive, they all uh, claim that they don't know. They don't know what anyone's any researchers are talking about when the footage is out there because it's yeah. in John Hank, John Hankey's film Dark Legacy Two, which has the same a different title on different platforms. The assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. It's in there with Susan Warnick talking to Coast Guard spokesperson Todd Bergen, who even John Hankey couldn't find. We were able to find him and Don Jeffries. I was able to connect him, <laughs> Todd Bergen and Don Jeffries. And that conversation is in the upcoming Hidden History oh, 3. Oh, that's going to be great. Hidden History 3. Do you have any idea when that's going to be coming out, Chris? It's still in the big phases for working because there's so much, well, right, I guess. Right, right now, Skyhorse is vetting it, I think. And uh, I think there's uh, all kinds of stuff in the background. Like uh, I yeah. talked to Don very, very limited about it because it's really mm -hmm. none of my none of my business so i don't try oh, to sure, try sure. Much. yeah but there's a lot of stuff in there a lot of new stuff on 9-11 we found i'll tell you guard i know we're supposed to be talking with jfk but i'll tell you here's a little teaser on that too and it's not really giving much away because we mentioned it on my 9-11 anomaly uh, anomaly anom anomalies show <laughs> sorry yeah. Uh, this past 9-11 on one of the digging shows, I had Don come on and we talked about some of this stuff again. I was able to find a Logan Airport employee that worked with a girl because she was female, a 22-year-old girl that dealt supposedly dealt with Muhammad Atta and the other Flight 11 uh, terrorists. And she ended up committing suicide. Uh, and it was never really written about. It was mentioned on Oprah once when they had they had the guy from Portland, Maine, that worked at that airport that they said Muhammad Atta flew out of to right. get to Logan. And then they got to Logan from there. So this woman well, had a contact with him, had to deal with him somehow at Logan Airport, like to take care of him as a customer, or he was giving her a hassle or something. Or yeah, or she saw who he. She saw whoever boarded as Muhammad Atta in the other Flight Eleven. Um, cronies or whatever you want to call them like she saw who she saw something that was and they tried to say on the oprah show with this gentleman from uh, portland maine at that airport because he uh he mentioned it on oprah's show in 2005 uh he mentioned that there was a a young woman that committed suicide that dealt with the the people i dealt with earlier in the morning wow and now of course i don't act, i don't I don't advocate watching Oprah, but uh, so it's, some, it's some sort of anomaly anomaly to the to the narrative that we were given. Yeah, that there is this uh, gate this gate person that uh, was so distraught. That was the story they were they were giving. I I tend Don and I we tend to think that you know who did she really deal with if it wasn't Muhammad Atta? Could it be one of? There's all kinds of theories that I'm not even going to yeah. attempt to speculate on, but. Was she really distraught? I mean, it's very possible. She could have felt like she was somewhat responsible for oh, letting sure. them on the plane or whatever. Yep. But it's yep. not really her. It wouldn't have been her fault anyway, regardless, you know. No. But the idea that this this older lady that's now retired, she was scared. She was really scared when Don, I gave, I connected Don with her, and she wouldn't go on the record or anything. And he said that she oh, was pretty wow. scared. Wow. So anyway, that's um, well. Let's yeah, let's, let's, let's backtrack to JFK Jr. Yeah. for a second, though. Um, okay. Uh, now, is it your opinion? And I think it, it is likely. And I know we've spoken about this before. Uh, is it your opinion that JFK Jr. was assassinated? And if you can, 
offer us a reason why they would have, uh, you know, whatever powers that be would, would have gone after him, would have gone after JFK Jr.? Well, the, the working theory, and uh, I'm not sure where I stand on it. Some people think it's the Bush crowd. Some people think it's the Clinton crowd. I tend to think that there's really no distinction between the two because we knew that Papa Bush and the Pop, Poppy Bush or whatever and Bill Clinton, they, they were, uh, you know, they were tight-knit back in Ar- the Mena, Arkansas. Absolutely. Days. I was, I was going to go grab that book on the uh, Bush-Clinton yeah. stuff by Sean Atwood. I've got it over to my right. It's out of reach, though. Absolutely. We know the Mena Airport, the cocaine stuff from Nicaragua and Central America, uh, the CIA connections there. Um, we know that they were working together very well. Well, the thing was, Hillary was announcing she was going to be running for uh, the New York uh, Senate seat, right? Right. JFK Jr. was telling people around him in his circle that he was thinking about doing just the same. Right. But right. publicly, I think he kind of backed up, backed away a little bit. But behind the scenes, apparently, uh, he was a little more determined than that to get that seat. And let's remember, Hillary's a carpetbagger when it comes to that. Yeah. She wasn't from New York. And right. John Jr. was. He, he right. was always jogging around Central Park and everything, you know, after after his father was murdered and everything, you know, he, uh, Jackie uh, moved them to New York City and everything, all that. Yeah. Yeah. Then uh, over to Greece, I think, with Onassis, when she married Onassis, basically to protect her kids, apparently. Like that, yeah, you know. yeah, boy, I can't even, you know, you, you see you see what she must have gone through, and it, it's just, it's crazy, you know, and, and the personal relationship that must have been difficult with with JFK in the first place, and then all the other troubles. Um, uh, she must have really been a, a person who knew how to preserve herself, uh, for goodness sake, self-defense in so many ways. So let's talk about the, the JFK assassination, well, can I just, Chris. Can I mention mm. one, one, more, one more thing, one more yeah. important thing. When I say the Bush people and the Clinton people, the, the theory was that somehow Hillary's, the people behind that run, that you know puppet Hillary or whatever, possibly could have sabotaged his plane, like causing that explosion in the sky. Mm-hmm. I mentioned mm-hmm. that there were three witnesses, at least, that we were able to uh, identify in the reporting originally. Yeah. Um, there was also a weird thing where George W., at the same time, he was on the campaign trail against uh, Al Gore for the president for the presidency uh, in 2000. And John Hankey brought it up in his film, the assassination of John F. John F. Kennedy Jr. He brought up the, uh, the, the fact that W's campaign manager, I, f- I think her name was Kathy. I believe I could be, could be wrong, but he couldn't be found that whole weekend to make a statement because, you know, one, one president, ex-president's son, you know, right, for right. current, you know, the the current candidate, you know, who being an ex president's son, and they wanted to get word from him. She couldn't find him, and this was one of the most important times during that presidential uh, campaign for him. He was missing. So there are people out there that think that it, I don't go this far, but I don't shut it off either because anything's possible, as we could tell in the last few years. It could have been some kind of, uh, and this isn't me saying it. But the idea behind that, if it's the Bush people, which I make no distinction between the two anyway, right? it could have been some kind of a, a blood sacrifice, like because some people think that Poppy Bush had something to do with JFK's murder. So, well, could, you know, it's, it's possible. The maybe they, maybe there was just a meal plan with the bin Laden family or maybe, <laughs> with, yeah, maybe with the, uh, <laughs> hey, you know, please, hey, please, yeah. 
Yeah, maybe maybe they just had to get together with uh, what was it, John Hinckley Jr. and and have right. lunch. You know, I don't know. It's uh, yeah. they're it's in Scott, black Scott books Hinkley, together. Yeah. What's Scott that? Hinkley. Scott Hinckley, uh, yeah, John's brother, and uh, yeah, Osama's brother there with the Carlisle Group. Right. Right, exactly. Right, right, right. Sorry. No, no, no. So I want to read. I'm going to read just this little bit here, and and sort of touch base again, going back to this article from Future Freedom Foundation that was published years ago, 2013, by Tim Kelly. So go back down here, uh, and so he writes. Uh, and it should be mentioned that a U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee concluded in 1978, after a two-year investigation, that JFK was probably a victim of an elaborate conspiracy, not a lone nut. Who could have been and then part? they did nothing after yes. that, Yes. There's more. Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live. We're back with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live, chatting with our friend Chris Graves from Rumble and, of course, known on Twitter as at Seagraves Mask Guy, digging into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This is conspiracy. Who could have been part of such a conspiracy? Theories abound. Some finger the mafia while others blame rogue anti-Castro Cubans or the CIA or the FBI or the Pentagon or Asian drug lords or eccentric Texas oil barons or even then Vice President Lyndon Johnson. I think that's got a strong hint of... uh, I think Lyndon Johnson was involved or was aware of it. Others have posited scenarios involving a combination of some or all of these groups. The Kennedy administration had certainly ruffled a lot of feathers in its thousand days. Indeed, JFK's apparent turn to peace may have been the reason why he was gunned down. At first glance, JFK was an unlikely candidate for peacenik martyrdom. In 1960, Kennedy campaigned to the right of Richard Nixon, warning of a missile gap, in quotes, that had left the nation vulnerable to a Russian nuclear attack. He entered the White House, a committed Cold Warrior, declaring the time to be an, quote, hour of maximum danger, end quote, for freedom. America, he said, would pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success, the success of liberty, end quote. A primary beneficiary of the Kennedy administration was the military industrial complex as spending on both conventional and nuclear forces increased sharply from 1961 to 1963. However, after clashing with his joint chiefs over a number of issues and witnessing the apparent treachery of the CIA regarding the Bay of Pigs invasion, Kennedy developed a mistrust for his national security managers. The Cuban Missile Crisis, which brought the United States and Soviet Union to the brink of nuclear war, had a profound effect on JFK, and he emerged from it a changed man, determined to end the Cold War peacefully. In June 1963, JFK delivered a speech at American University in which he called for the total abolishment of nuclear weapons. A few months later, his administration signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty with the Soviets. Now, some people wonder whether or not he was really honest with that. Uh, I'll get you, I'd love to get your thoughts, Chris. He also began having private cor- correspondences with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, which enraged the CIA. And he was seeking a rapprochement 
with Cuba's dictator Fidel, Fidel Castro, which further incensed the agency for perhaps his National Security Action Memorandum 263, calling for the total withdrawal of U.S. troops from Vietnam by the end of 1965 was the final straw of the national security state. And, of course, then we had Lyndon Johnson signing National Security Memorandum 273, reversing that when he got into office. So, Chris, back to you, man. What are your thoughts after hearing that? Uh, yeah, LBJ was kind of a jerk. <laughs> you know? That's for darn sure. Yeah. Racist scumbag. Yeah. And I believe he had his own personal hitman, too. People yeah, that's know. I've heard that. I've heard that he had some people snuffed out in various ways as he climbed his way up that slippery, oily ladder. And yeah. uh, do you think he could have been involved in this? I think he could have been involved in this. I think he at least knew about it beforehand. I think he was very, very heavy-handed when it came to the cover-up after the fact. Mm-hmm. In terms okay. of prior to that, it's very, it's very possible. He had a lot to gain. He yeah. hated uh, he hated the Kennedy brothers. You know, you could tell. And mm-hmm. JFK was going to replace him as a VP candidate in '64. Interesting. So, a lot of people don't know about that either. Yeah, but. Whether that's a motive or not, I, I, I mean, that's just as good as any anything else. But wow. I'll tell you, man, uh, I really do feel like if JFK had lived, we wouldn't have been in Vietnam, at least in the way that things turned out. 58,000 Americans dead, a million Vietnamese possibly, you know, all the horrific things we've heard of, like Operation Phoenix and everything. So, yeah, yeah. he's going to ruffle some feathers when he wants to splinter the uh, the same alphabet agency that is trying to uh, compromise him and try to take him down. Uh, he wants to splinter them into a thousand pieces to the wind right. or whatever. And the Khrushchev thing, they did have talk, backdoor channels, because Khrushchev apparently was aware that his military and the people, you know, the war hawks around him, he didn't trust either. So it was like they were both surrounded by uh, vipers, you know, that wanted war, 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 no matter what. So it was like uh, a mirror situation, you know. Wow. Well, what do you think is the most likely of the scenarios? If you could list off a couple of the scenarios, whether it was... CIA mafia, CIA FBI mafia, CIA on its own, mafia on its own. Oswald, I think, just on his own is absurd. Uh, yeah. Then we've got Arlen Specter with the magic bullet thing being brought in there, introducing the and magic Gerald bullet Ford. Thing. Gerald Ford yeah, and, and Arlen Specter together. Yep, and both of them got heavily paid off, and they had their political careers all set if they would just maintain yeah. an absolute lie that was so absurd and ridiculous. And then they had that report come out that supposedly bolstered it, which was a ridiculous report, almost 900 pages of nonsense. What do you yeah. think is the most likely of, of those scenarios? Well, I mean, you know, when you think about it, do you go back and forth between a couple, or what do you think? There's a couple of Texas oilmen, definitely H.L. Hunt had a lot to gain, and he hated Kennedy, too. Um, and as we know, George Bush Sr., if he was involved, I mean, he he, he was right there. And I, it's almost impo- it's, it's impossible to think that he wasn't involved with the agency uh, before 1975. Well, let's go back to H.L. Hunt for a second. So H.L. Hunt, Texas oil man, what was at stake for H.L. Hunt there, and why would he have wanted Kennedy knocked out? JFK was going to take away the oil depletion um, for a lot of the Texas oil guys, you know, the credits, uh, 
oil depletion credits or whatever. Um, so they had a, a lot of money at stake there uh, oh. in terms of that. The yeah. mafia can't change the parade route. The mafia can't uh, sabotage the media for 60 years to keep right. you know, yeah. doing yeah. what they do. Um, yeah. The mafia were actually contracted a lot, even during World War II, by the Central Intelligence Organization or yeah. uh, mm. The CIA agency, mm. Mm. which was the OSS back in uh, World War II. Right. Um, so the mafia could have been involved in terms of the hired hands, you know. But if uh, the if the mafia were involved, it's likely that they were being influenced or pushed in certain ways by political figures who either were using them and threatening them with potential government action, or yeah. they were giving going to give them favors, that sort of thing, right? Well, they were known for having a history like that. Yeah, back and forth. Like, it's kind of hard to tell with a lot of these situations where one ends and one begins. And the yeah, thing right. was, I mean, yeah, Bobby was prosecuting uh, the mafia, and they did have a chip, chip on the shoulder about that. But right. in terms of all the other stuff, like the cover-up at the Parkland Hospital stuff, like uh, big gaping baseball-sized wound in the back of the skull, like JFK's brain going missing from the National Archives, you know, the mafia can only do so much. So I don't give them that yeah. much credence. The Cubans, that makes no sense because Operation Northwoods was something that um, JFK nixed, which was basically a blueprint mm. for a 9-11 or a, a, even a school shooting type scenario. Where people yeah. were either, either there were going to be phantom people dead, and that goes into the hoax realm that we hear about nowadays. They actually had manifests that they were going to use of fake passengers on a plane. They were going to blow up and say yep. that. For yeah. Right. And then they also were planning um, shootings on the streets of Washington and uh, Miami, I believe. So, yeah, and and again, like I said, I think they were going to have a cell phone call from the plane where a guy said, "Let's roll." Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, Who also happens to be uh, an employee of Oracle, a CIA front and Larry. Right. I mean, yep. go into that one, but yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff with that too. But hey, Chris, I know I know your time is short, so I want to take an opportunity <laughs> here to go to the Rockfin and the Rumble chats. Had some great comments yeah. from people uh, pertaining to other subjects, but uh, <laughs> drop your comments or thoughts inside Rumble and Rockfin, everybody, because uh, Chris is going to be uh, Chris. Why don't you tell them where you're going to be appearing starting at eight o'clock tonight? Eight o'clock tonight, I'm going to be with my very very good friend uh, Franco Matei, uh, Matei, Angry uh, Tiger. Angry Tiger. And sorry right. if I butchered his last name. But, yeah, no, that's an addiction episode. Uh, that's going to be great. Yeah. yeah. And that's over at the Tiger's Den on Rumble. And people can watch oh, over there and check it out. Or on YouTube. He is YouTube for a little while that's longer. Right. While that's they, right. But here's um, the thing. Same yeah. situation as me. His stuff is only on his platform on Rumble. Just so people know that we can't – me and him, can't. we can't stress it enough – these individual mm-hmm. digging Chris Graves in the Tiger's Den, both on Rumble. That is the only place that our stuff should be. Should very be. key, very key. Okay, uh, let's see. The thing at uh, t- tonight, I, I might be wearing myself thin here, but there will be an episode of my uh, pop culture MTV kind of style uh cranium blender will be on at 10 on free world if the technology allows me to. Oh, I hope so. Freeworld.fm, 10 o'clock. And I love that the 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 cranium blender. It's just and it's like an old old school MTV show that never yeah is, that's yeah. What I 
Hey, uh, a comment from Harlan Stonewall over at Harlan Stonewall 45 at Rumble says LBJ looked to have known something. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of people are. There's a a picture of him winking at uh, a Texas uh, congressman on Air Force One where Jackie is standing next to him with the blood covered dress. And he's winking and smirking at this guy. It's a pretty infamous. I remember photo. that? Yes, yeah. yes. And I also think that that photograph where people say, "Oh, it looks sort of like George George H. W. Bush outside of that building," and that yeah. he might have been apprehended but let go when they found out that he was actually involved in some operation. I think it, I think that's him. I think it's him. And I think that there were a lot of strands that were pulled together uh, by awesome. people in the military industrial complex and the CIA to to kill Kennedy, because I think he did change his mind. I think he really yeah. had a, an about face. And I also think that that led to his son getting killed, too. Oh, yeah, because yeah. his son from earlier, his son, uh, by all accounts, people in his inner circle, he would have became president eventually a couple oh, of years yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. And the Hillary looks, Clinton could not looks stand alone. It. Yeah, oh, yeah, just on his looks alone in a vanity yeah. kind of way. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like you said, he was he was a mainstay. He was a fixture in New York. And he wasn't one of these, you know, like super glitzy kind of guys. He started that George Magazine. He worked hard at George Magazine. Everybody knew him around New York as just, a, a you know, coming as the president's son and son a of Jackie County Onassis. He, they said he was a really he, decent guy. He wasn't his cousins either. No scandal. No. Well, nothing like no, that. No, no patches there. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, people familiar with patches. Look, I'm going to let you go, Chris, because I know you got to get set up. You're going to be with Angry Tiger starting at 8 o'clock. It's the addiction show. It's the Tiger's Den. And I'll get ready to wrap things up as well. I know that everybody is in Rockfin right now. And um, there's so many mention, people. Yeah. Can I mention one, one, other, one last crucial thing for people that are really interested in the video anomalies of like the Zapruder film? Yeah. The thing that got me really interested in the JFK assassination was the the idea that there could have been other films that we don't know about or that right. other people other people in researchers have claimed to see over the years. One was a guy named Rich Della Rosa. He talked about it with uh Jim Fetzer. He's no longer with us, uh Rich Della Rosa. He talked about seeing a another version of the Zapruder film on a college campus back in the, the early seventies that showed all the stuff that's missing from the existence. Oh, uh, and not only that, a French guy talk, a French uh, investigator talked to the late Jim Mars. His name's William Raymond. He talked mm-hmm. about seeing a similar film where you see the, the Stemmons freeway sign get shot. You had the limo actually stopping in the film, the real wound, the real wound that's not this blob thing that looks like it's painted on is shown. And also um, the, the turn on to Elm is seen. So there oh. rich Della Rosa it's called the other Zapruder film. So it's on YouTube, the, uh, the interview. So it fascinated me to no end that there could have been another version that only certain people were allowed to see. So all these all these points are so important. You talk about the pauses, the change in the roots. As you say, there are only certain forces who could have had the power to do all those things. So we know where the the arrows are pointing. And uh, we don't know the actual people, but I think we can make some uh, reasonable guesses. Uh, Oswald, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Hey, thank you so much, Chris. And I want to thank Dystopian Dissident as well in Rumble. Uh, he contributed $5. He says, thanks for your perspective, Guard. Great show. Day in and day out. Always thought-provoking. And Harlan Stonewall, thanks for what you've done. And Harlan Stonewall says, it's Mr. Graves! Exclamation <laughs> point. Thanks, Chris. I love, I love you all. I love you all. I love you, man. Thank you. Chris Graves. Remember, digging Chris Graves. And on Twitter slash X, it's at C Graves. Mask yes. guy. Rock on, Chris. Thank you, brother. Thanks. All right, man. We'll I, talk to you soon. Take care. You got it. Well, that was just fantastic. What a what a what a great guy. Chris Gray is everybody. Give him massive support. Find out how you can support him. Donations, anything like that on Thanksgiving. Boy, am I glad I know Chris. I've got to know him and so many other good people over the past year. As as we get ready for Thanksgiving, everybody, I just want to mention that. Uh thank you so much for for being here and uh, helping to grow the show. And, uh, you know, we're not even a year old, and I appreciate that. But moreover, just thanks for being kind. And, and um, you know, in your lives, I hope things are going well and your loved ones are doing well and so on. And I hope you uh, are uh, savoring uh, life. And uh, so um, we'll be back tomorrow night. I'm going to open things up tomorrow night for Thanksgiving. And uh, we're going to have a great time tomorrow night and just reminiscing about Thanksgiving ideas, things like that. I think we'll be able to do it. I think we'll, we'll have dinner early enough. I'll be able to come in. And I've got a couple things planned for you. I will do, uh, I'll do the Thanksgiving stuff later. The, the stuff I was going to talk about the, about Thanksgiving tonight, I'll do it tomorrow night. And I've got a little something to read. Uh, I've got basically three video presentations to show you, one of which I could read, but it is in a video uh, format as well. So some of it is fun, kind of goofy, kind of funny. The other is very serious historical stuff from uh, Governor William Bradford, of course. And uh, thanks for being there, J.B. Morrison and Rockfin, Harry Hart. And thanks also for everyone being in Rumble. Really appreciate it. And uh, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, I, I hope everybody has a terrific night. And uh, that you all have a good time. Think about your favorite dishes for Thanksgiving. One of the most difficult places you had to travel to try to get to a Thanksgiving gathering. But you were really happy you made it. And um, other ways and things that might give you thanks. Right? So we'll talk about those tomorrow night if you can join me. And then uh, I think that'll be great. And if not, we can always talk about it Friday. But, uh, if you know, if you can't join me, if you're busy with family or that sort of thing, we'll be here 6 o'clock tomorrow night. It'll be great. And uh, I want to thank Chris Graves again. I'll leave you with that little production that I put together once more from New Race. And uh, that'll be our going away um, video. It's November 22nd, 1963. I put a little extra work in today. Make sure I could put that together for you. Uh, on this 60th anniversary of the uh, killing of that man. So, um, yeah, so here it is, JFK New Race. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great, great night. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. And uh, celebrate life and uh, give thanks to God for everything. We'll talk to you tomorrow night. Get those stories ready, one and all. All right? Talk to you soon. Be seeing you.
Thanks for listening to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. You can listen to Liberty Conspiracy Live every Monday through Friday at Rumble and Rockfin. And you can also chat at both of those. Or if you just want to watch or listen, you can do so at my Twitter slash X feed. That is at Guard Goldsmith, G-A-R-D Goldsmith. I am Gardner Goldsmith, the creator, you might say, of Liberty Conspiracy. And if you want to get more information, you can also join my Substack. The Substack is Gardner Goldsmith, G-A-R-D-N-E-R Goldsmith. And on Sundays, we release the Sunday News Assembly, which is at least 20 stories pertaining to individual liberty, breaking news, plus contextual information to help peel those political onions out there and carry away long-term lessons for freedom. And if you're so inclined, you can also find my fiction at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Just look up my name. Thanks again for being interested in freedom. If you want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate, well, I know a guy who's really great. It's the Realtor Mark Ward. Now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in New Hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime. Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com. Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupineralestate.com